Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, thank you for the chance today to be in this place, to be gathered together, to have come through um, these doors, to be able to sing to you, to hear your word, and to hear from you. And so we lift this time to you and ask that you would speak to us. We ask that, that you would soften our hearts today, even as we read this text and, and walk through it together. We, we love you, and we're grateful for Christ, our hope, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, this past week, I spent a few days in the amazing city of Minneapolis um, for some meetings. Um, if you're from Minneapolis, that's great. I think it's beautiful there probably three to four months out of the year, and the rest is winter. Um, and, but at these meetings, you know, there was, there's a few things that broke in the news this past week, if, in case you weren't paying attention. Um, you see, here I can make that joke because I know that you guys know what the news cycle is doing, and I'm always amazed when I get outside of D.C. how little people care about the news that we think is so important. And that was one of the things that struck me this week, is that it feels like some significant things happened, particularly in politics this week, and um, I felt like the only person who was paying attention in, in a lot of conversations that I was having. And, and it, it showed me something that... We, at times, well, I mean, in this town, we like to make everything into a big deal. That's why any time it snows, we have a name for it, um, which what, I grew up in Chicago. If you're from Minneapolis, if you're from places where it actually snows consistently, you know that that's not necessary. Um, but we have Snowpocalypse and Snowzilla, and it goes on and on and on. And, and so we have a tendency to blow things up and, exp and expand things. But even, when, even with that, even with things that are going to be looked at long term, I don't know that we actually know as well as we think we do what will stick and what won't, what people will be talking about and what people won't. I mean, we're in an age of kind of social media and YouTube stardom where somebody can burst onto the scene and something can go viral for a moment and then it'd be forgotten about forever. We're a culture of flashpoints and fame and it's hard to know what will be enduring. And in that, it's hard to know what we can cling to and that will have lasting value. Well, today's text is going to help us with that. We're on a series in the book of Exodus. And um, I've told you, as a church, we're going to fly through Exodus. We're covering the entire book in just 12 weeks. Um, the first few weeks, that might have been confusing because the first few weeks we covered just like a chapter or so at a time. Today, you'll get a sense of how much we're going to fly through it as we're going to cover chapters 5 to 13 um, today with the time that we have remaining. Um, and so, um, it, what we'll see today in today's text, up until this point, is Exodus opens, it, we see the curtain open, and, and the first scene that we see is that God feels absent. The Israelites are in the land of Egypt, a new pharaoh comes up, and, and turns the people into slavery, and, and it starts killing Hebrew children, and it feels like God is absent. They don't, and, and so it's chapter two, it's not that God feels absent, but it's a wonder, but we begin to wonder, does God hear us, and does he care? What we saw last week is that God revealed himself to Moses by his name, and it was the, it's the first time in the biblical storyline that the personal covenant name of God is used. And so it, in chapter 6, we, we read that God said to Moses, I revealed myself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as Elohim, as God, or as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not reveal myself to them. And so we saw last week that God makes himself known to us when we are brokenhearted. Today, we see that expand. The big idea today is that God makes himself known to all people. And so um, with that, we're, I'm going to read um, a section of Exodus. We're going to start in Exodus 5 today. If you have a Bible or one of those scripture journals, that's where we'll begin. Um, if you don't, there will be verses on the screen for you. And so I'm going to read a section of chapter 5 and then a section of chapter 7, and then we'll settle in for the morning. In chapter 5, Moses had returned to Egypt, and as he did, he came before Pharaoh. So we read this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, 
let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord, Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, moreover, and I will not let Israel go. And then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh, our Lord, the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make, the rest, and, and you make them rest from their burdens. And the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and the foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past, but let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them, and you shall by, by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the, on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. And so the taskmasters carried these things out. And when we move to verse 22, it continues. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now moving ahead to chapter 7, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt to bring, them, bring the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so this sets the scene for what follows in the following chapters that we're not going to take the time to read in its fullness today, but what comes after. So Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh, and as they came to him, they asked, they made a request saying, hey, will you let us um, take the people and go out into the wilderness for three days to worship Yahweh, our God, together? Remember, whenever you see the word Lord in all capitals in your Bible, that's an indication that it's God's covenant name, his divine name that he revealed to Moses in the text that we read last week. And so they say this, they say, can we do this? Now this, was a, this might sound odd to us that they would say, hey, can we take these enslaved people and go and do this? But there's precedent for this in the ancient Near East and in Egypt, that enslaved people would request a leave for the sake of worship so they could go out outside of the cities and worship their gods. And it was a way the Egyptians would allow people to do this because it was a way for them to maintain control. To be able to say, look, we've been generous to you and allowed you to continue to worship your gods and not necessarily command that you worship our gods. And so it was a normal thing. And Moses knew the rules. Remember, Moses was brought up in Pharaoh's house. He was brought up in the royal nursery, tra trained in the ways of Egypt. And so he went in making a request that he hoped was in line with what Pharaoh might grant. But Pharaoh doesn't. And in fact, he doubles down. And when Moses says, he says you know, we want to be able to go and, and, and do this thing. We want to be able to go and worship our God together. We want to worship Yahweh and hold a feast in the wilderness what is Pharaoh's response? He says, who is that? I've never heard of him. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I won't let Israel go. And he says, in fact, Moses, we're not going to give straw for the people to make bricks anymore, but we're going to maintain the same quotas for bricks being made. And so he doubles down and comes against the people here. What we need to understand is, is Pharaoh may legitimately have never heard the name Yahweh. Remember, he's never been revealed by that name, so Moses is the first to hear that name. And so this is a polytheistic culture with hundreds or even thousands of gods, and it's likely legitimate that Pharaoh didn't know this god. But I do think it's amazing here that what we see first and foremost is, is that this is a section that shows plagues and deliverance, but that God makes himself known. 
He's made himself known to Moses already, but now he's about to make himself known to all people. And, and the response here of, of the Lord is to say, okay, Pharaoh doesn't know who I am. Well, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to multiply my signs in all of Egypt. And, Pharaoh, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against them. And so here, even here, when, when as Pharaoh begins to take action to, against the Israelites and continue to even double down on his oppression of the Israelites, he's, he doesn't know Yahweh. He doesn't know who God is. And so the, God says, okay, here we go. It will be unmistakable who I am. I'm going to make myself known not only to the Israelites, but to the Egyptians as well. They will know that I am the Lord. They will know that my name is Yahweh. And through the following chapters, that is something that is repeated over and over again. There are ten signs that come against the Egyptians. We usually call these the ten plagues. Um, This is how they're brought up. Like if you grew up in Sunday school, you were probably taught the ten plagues. Um, And if you've seen Prince of Egypt... This, they all come together with one song that ties everything together. Um, they don't spend a ton of time on them because it was a children's cartoon and it would be terrifying to see a children's cartoon play them all out in great detail. Um, but these are, there's 10 signs that God brings and it's repeated over and over and over again that the reason for these, the purpose for what, what transpires in Egypt from this point is that he would be known. And so it's, it's not just that he was being vindictive, it's that God's name would be known by all people, even the Egyptians. And so we need to hear this, that God has made himself known. Because at times, we, li- we really do live in an Exodus chapters 1 and 2 world, where God can feel absent from us. He can feel distant from us. We wonder, does God see what's happening around us? Does he see what's happening in the halls of power? And, it, or, and does he see what's happening in our lives? Does he hear our cries to him? As if we cry out needing his intervention and help, is God there and does he hear us? And we're shown over and over again here, God does hear us. He does see us. He's not distant, and he has made himself known. It's hard for us to grasp this, I think, because we get burned so often. We're, we put our trust in people around us, and often even in, in people that are leaders and, or celebrities or people with, with significant cultural clout, where we'll, we'll put our trust in somebody, and then a scandal will hit, and we'll wonder, like, did I even know that person? That, that's, not, that's not anything that I thought I knew. Um, for me, this happens when I see pastors who I l- read their books and listen to them and, and respect them. And when you see a pastor fall and you wonder, did I even know that guy? It happens with other leaders. It happens with people in relationships closer to us, too. And we've all felt the sting of betrayal from people that we love. And it can make us question and doubt, can we really trust? And, and, and we'll import that even onto God. Can we trust God? Is he distant and unknowable? Well, no, what we see here is God has revealed himself ultimately in his word. And the question of uh, before us today isn't, the question that we need to wrestle with today isn't, can God be known? But the question we wrestle with today is, will we accept what God has revealed about himself? Will we believe what God has said about who he is? So God has made himself known. The second thing we see in this section is that God is all-powerful. Now, what happens after chapter 7, when Moses and Aaron are before Pharaoh, is that there's a series, first, of nine signs. And so this rolls out that first it turns to, the Nile River is turned to blood. And so Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, and, and Mo, Lord, Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. And so therefore, when he's go out to the water of the Nile and stand and, and, and turn it to blood. And so all of the water in Egypt is turned to blood, and there's a stench from the Nile River. And so Moses comes back to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh still won't let the people go. Seven full days that that was the case. The second sign is frogs. I think for some of these, like, you've got to, we've got to hear these, and if you haven't read this section, you can read it in detail later today. Again, it's too long for us to, cu- to read every word together this morning, but just think about the actual impact that this would have if you were living through and experiencing these things. First, all of the water is turned to blood for a week in Egypt. Second, a plague of frogs. 
that frogs are everywhere. And listen to this. It says, they'll come up into your house and into your bedroom and into your bed and into the houses of your servants and of your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. And it shall come up upon you and your people and all of your servants. There will be frogs everywhere that have come up out of the Nile. Do you know how disgusting that would be? Like, we see leftovers of a single mouse in our kitchen, and I'm like, I'm ready to burn the place down. <laughs> but there's frogs in all of your cookingware and in your ovens and in your bed. And so it continues. Pharaoh still saw, so he, Moses comes and he, Pharaoh pleads with, with Moses to relent. He, Moses goes before the Lord, so they, they, he ends the sign early. When, but when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his own heart and wouldn't listen to the Lord. And so that one even ended early, but, but Pharaoh, again, wouldn't listen. The third plague is gnats. And so gnats in all of the land of Egypt, one commentator, to make this stick a little bit more and feel like it relates to us more in D.C., there's one commentator that thinks that gnats here might be better translated as mosquitoes. So it feels like home. <laughs> Stretch out your staff so that the dust of the earth will become gnats or mosquitoes in all the land of Egypt. And so it happened. There were gnats on man and beast and the gnats in the land of Egypt. And, and this is the first one. The first plague, the blood, the magicians of Pharaoh were able to duplicate. The frogs, they were able to play around with. But gnats, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Even his own magicians said, we can't, we can't duplicate this one. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen to the Lord. The fourth sign was flies. And he turns the water and says, let my people go that they may serve. Otherwise, if you will not, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and your houses. All of Egypt will be filled with swarms of flies on the ground on which they stand. The fifth sign was that the livestock of the Egyptians died. And now it was getting pointed. That it wasn't the livestock in the land of Egypt it was just the Egyptians' livestock, not the livestock of the Israelites. So the livestock were killed. The sixth sign is boils. That Moses took the ash out of handfuls of soot from a kiln and threw it in the sight of Pharaoh, and it became a fine dust over the land of Egypt, and boils and sores broke out on man and beast throughout Egypt. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he didn't listen to them. The seventh sign was hail just on the land of the Egyptians. Hail that it's described as bigger than any hail that had ever hit in the land of Egypt, that it was destroying crops and destroying livestock, and that there was hail mixed with fire landing on the land of Egypt. And so, but, Moses, but Pharaoh pleaded with Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against, I've sinned. The Lord is right, and my pe I and my people are wrong. Plead with the Lord. So it seems like we have a moment of repentance after that sign. And Pharaoh comes out and says, please, I've sinned against, against Yahweh. Make it stop. Moses goes out and prays to God and pleads with him to stop it. And he does. The hail ceased. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And so the eighth sign was locusts. And it says there, and at the beginning of chapter 10, that these are the signs, so that you may know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. And locusts come over the face of the whole land, so the land was darkened, and the locusts destroyed the crops and food sources. And the ninth sign was darkness, just over the land of the Egyptians. And so these nine signs are, are, what are a sign of God's power over Egypt. And there's been all kinds of thought and trying to understand what is happening in here and how does it roll itself out. And, and there, there are some who have even tried to connect these to specific Egyptian deities along the way and saying that they were being directly countered. And that's interesting, but I don't think that's as helpful here. Remember that Pharaoh thought of himself and was seen as a god. He was the god over the Egyptian pantheon. And so he was the one in control of the rest of the gods. And so here, what is happening is a direct attack on the power of Pharaoh to protect even his own land and his own people. 
that there are three sets here that are, that are shown, three sets of three as God's power is unleashed in Egypt that show the helplessness of Pharaoh. The first three, the river turned to blood and the frogs and the gnats show God's power over the, the Nile River, the source of life for the Egyptians. The second three signs of the flies and the livestock and the boils show God's power over the land of Egypt itself that Pharaoh was not in control even over the land. And the last triad, the hail and the locusts in the darkness, show God's power over the sky. And so these are the three, the three spheres of the Egyptian cosmos, the Nile River, the land, and the sky, and God shows his power over all three, and in that breaks the power of Pharaoh in all places. And why? Remember the purpose? That's point one that God has made himself known, and he says, I'm doing this so that you may know that I am the Lord, that you'll know my name, Yahweh. I think it's amazing to note, as we, we saw this in chapter one, that Pharaoh here is never named. The man who had set himself up as God, the man who has set himself up oppressing these people and set himself up against Yahweh as God, he is forgotten for human history, and we will never know which Pharaoh this actually was. We know the names of Shifra and Pua, two Hebrew midwives from chapter one who, who were obedient to God. We know the names of Moses and Aaron, and, and you notice the contrast here that, that Pharaoh vacillates, but he continually stands obstinately, pridefully, arrogantly against the power of God, even as these signs progress. But it's striking that in the midst of that, that Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. They were obedient exactly to what God had called them to, and we see his power on display. And so the purpose behind these signs, these three sets of three, the nine signs, again, is that they would know that he is the Lord, that he is powerful. This, this is important for us. When we come before God, when we worship him, when we pray to him, when we talk about him, we're not talking about some distant deity. He's made himself known. And we're not talking to a God that, we're, that we wonder, can he intervene? Is he powerful? No, we're, we're talking about the God who is all-powerful over all things. A heavenly father who can step in and lead the way and intervene. And, and again, this is something we need to hear. Do you, do you remember being a kid? Um, or Some of you that are in here that are kids. I, when I was a kid, I thought my dad was the strongest and smartest and best at everything. And do you remember the schoolyard like debates over whose dad was stronger? Um, and and you, we, we grow up, if you, if you grew up with a dad who, with a good relationship with your dad, this is something that you see still in kids. I can remember when my kids started having those debates and, and watching them and in, in moments being like, yeah, that is who I am and trying to own that. <laughs> yeah, I think I probably could beat that guy arm wrestling. I'm not a small guy, Maybe I think I'd be all right. But then the re realization too that it, that which we idolize, we also demonize, which is what happens as our kids get older. At some point we start to see that our dad isn't actually the strongest person in the world. I don't know, and it could come from a variety of ways. It could, it could just come from simple, as a kid, you, you, know, you, you can't conceive of something beyond what's immediately in front of you, but as you start to develop, you start to be able to realize possibility and start to realize that things could be different or that things might not be quite what you've assumed them to be. And so you start, as your brain starts to develop that way, we start to see that we have wake-up calls along the way, and we see that our dads are human, that our parents are human. And not just about how strong they are, in all kinds of ways. We start to see that our parents make mistakes. They mess up along the way. And you start to realize, you start to realize that your parents are just humans, and at times that, that leads to the vacillation in our teen years of thinking they are idiots who have nothing to contribute to my life. And hopefully we're able to bring that back at some point to have an appreciation of them, but that realization of their humanity and their frailty and their, their, their own propensity for mistake and error, it, it, it can shake us up along the way. And I think that can creep into, again, our ability to even trust God. That our relationships with our parents will shape our heart as we come before God himself. 
And so especially for those of you who have a tough relationship with your parents or have had an abusive father, it makes it really difficult to get to a point of hearing God is a father who loves you and cares for you and the all-powerful God of the universe knows you and hears you and loves you. It can be hard to wrap our minds around those things and to believe those things deeply. But look here what we see, that God reveals himself to all people, that he is all-powerful, and that, that he has power over land and sea and sky, and yes, even over human rulers and powers. He sustains all things, and every molecule of the universe holds its existence because of him. And this gets to our hearts, then, that God changes our hearts. One of the big themes of this section, alongside God's self-revelation and God's power on display, is the continual hardening of Pharaoh's heart. That we see like a spiral downward. And again, points where Pharaoh comes to Moses and it seems like there's an opening. It seems like there might be a breakthrough. Even a point where after the hail, he says, I sinned. And it seems like it might be repentance. Where he's saying, I have sinned against Yahweh. I've sinned against this God. Please go to him and plead that he might stop this disaster. So it feels like Pharaoh might be getting somewhere. But that is the section that I think most clearly shows the nuance of what's happening. That it's after the hail in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 34, into chapter 10 that we read, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he didn't let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, so that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And so here we've got this three-sided, three-faceted approach to what's happening to Pharaoh. It says Pharaoh sinned against God and hardened his own heart. It says just objectively his heart was hardened. And then it says in God's own words that God himself hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So who's responsible? And this is one of the most difficult things that we read in the text. This is struggle. Paul struggles through this in Romans chapter 9. And later on in chapter 11, Moses' own magicians and servants are frustrated with Pharaoh in chapter 11. That Moses gets frustrated and saying, saying, what are you doing? He flashes anger. He's angry at Pharaoh saying, saying, don't you understand the death and the disaster that's going to follow if you continue in this? Don't you see your own stubbornness? Do you see these signs? The Egyptian magicians in chapters 8 and 10 urge Pharaoh to back off. They're pleading with him. Would you please stop and just let these people go, but Pharaoh continues in the path that he's on, blinded by his own arrogance and pride. And I know that we can tend to have a hard time with this section. When we read in Romans chapter 9, it says that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he will have compassion and that he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. We wonder, how could that happen? How could God harden somebody's heart? And we, get, we kind of pull back at the idea that God hardened his heart. And I think because if we're honest, we're scared of what if God does the same thing to me? And so a couple of observations here. First, don't forget that this is a wicked ruler who had set himself up as God. His claim was to be the all-powerful And in the midst of that, he abused his power to oppress these people. He enslaved them. He killed their infants, trying to commit essentially a genocide. He, in the midst of it, he he doubled down on their labor and made them build bricks without straw. Go collect your own straw. And then it it doubled down from there to now no straw at all and, and still was oppressive to these people. And so here's a wicked and oppressive ruler that God was confronting the abuse of power in this one man in order to liberate a people from bondage. So don't lose sight of that. And Pharaoh had set him, uh, himself apart as a god, and he, 
who didn't know the one true God, and he was being confronted that way. And so we need to keep that in perspective here. But, but then even on that, a second aspect for us to note here is that there is still human responsibility even within divine sovereignty. And this touches on one of the greatest mysteries we could try to unravel. That, that what we, again, what we see is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That we see objectively from an outside perspective his heart got harder and then God claims to be the one hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so all of these interplay together. It's not like it's just one or the other. But I think there's a haunting question in chapter 10. That after, it's, after God says, I've hardened his heart, and, and this is, he says, Moses, you're going to tell these stories to your sons and your grandsons of how I've dealt with the Egyptians and the power of these signs so that you may know that I am the Lord. And then Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh in chapter 10, verse 3, and said, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? And that's the question that comes to every one of us. You see, the language of hardened hearts is something that carries through all the way through Scripture from this point. That the Israelites at points hardened their hearts. When, when they, God brings them through, and we're going to see this, that God brings them out of Egypt and he brings them through the Sea of Reeds and he brings them, he brings them um, through Mount Sinai and toward the Promised Land. And when they got to the border of the Promised Land, what did the Israelites do? Well, they sent out some spies and the spies came back and said, ah, the people in this place are big. And so they refused to go in. They hardened their own hearts. Then even once they did go into the promised land, after 40 years in the wilderness, they finally go in and God gives them the land that he had promised to Abraham. And even at that point, they turned to other false gods and it hardened their hearts. We read in Psalm 115 that this is what happens. This is the result of idolatry and worship of idols, that we become like the things we worship. And, and so it says those who make them, make idols, will become like them. They'll have mouths but won't speak, and eyes but won't see, and ears but won't hear, and our hearts themselves will be hard. This extends then when Isaiah is called to the people of Israel, that God says to him, there's the vision of God's glory in the temple, and Isaiah is brought into the presence of God, and God calls him and cleanses him. And when Isaiah confesses and says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I've come from a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord Almighty, and God cleanses him and then calls him, and, and what he calls Isaiah to is, he says, go and preach to these people, but their hearts will be hard. They'll have eyes but won't see, ears but won't hear, and their hearts will be hardened. So he tells Isaiah, you're going to go and preach my word to my people, the same people of the same lineage of those who had been in Egypt. And he tells Isaiah, in spite of all of your preaching, the result is that the people's hearts will be hard. When you get to Jeremiah, the prophet looks ahead to a time when God would do something new and there would be a new covenant and the people's hearts of stone would be removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. But then even when you get into the ministry of Jesus and people ask him, why do you speak in parables? Why do you teach this way? Jesus doesn't say, you know, I speak in parables so that people will hear stories and think they're really great illustrations. Jesus says, I speak in parables Basically, so that only those who have ears to hear will hear it. So that others' hearts will be hardened, that their eyes will be closed. Otherwise, see, they might have eyes to see and ears to hear and to perceive and to turn and repent. And then we get to Romans 9, that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Every one of us has the danger of a hardened heart. And we fall into it the same ways that are described for Pharaoh here. What are, I mean, so what are some of the ways that we harden our own hearts? Well, one is directly pursuing sin. Things that we know aren't right. Things that we know are, aren't what God has for us. And listen, it doesn't even have to be that. that, that it, it, Francis Schaeffer talked about if we all had... Well, he talks about a tape recorder around our necks. Um, we wouldn't need a tape recorder, but imagine that you had an audio recording device around your neck for your entire life that captured everything that you ever said, or, I mean, just said, not even thought, 
about the way that we ought to live, what, you, basically putting together your own personal ethic. There is not one of us here that has even lived up to our own personal ethic. And so even if you reject the God of the Bible, even if you reject Jesus Christ, even if you reject the ethics that come through Christianity, there's still a reality that none of us even lives up to our own ethic apart from those things. And so every one of us then sears our consciences to try to justify what we do. Because every one of us falls victim to the reality that the things that our hearts desire, our minds will justify and explain away, and then we will go and do it and enjoy it. And the more we do that, the more it will harden our hearts. We lose the sensitivity to the reality of wrongdoing. That'll lead to, an, and, and so it, within that, I mean, we see this in all kinds of ways. My gosh, do we see this in our political leaders with seared consciences where we wonder, how did somebody get so far down a path they've gone down? Well, it's because you do it long enough and you forget that things are wrong. You forget that there is an ethic. We see it in all kinds of other ways. I mean, I can remember this, like the, the danger of setting up extra biblical restrictions on things. This is what happens in the garden. That when the serpent comes to Eve, came to Eve and he said, you know, what did God tell you about this tree? She said, well, God told us not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden and nor to touch it lest we die. Well, they had added restrictions to what God had given to them. And when we do that, we have a tendency to blow right through and forget which restrictions are real. And so when we sin, it can sear our consciences and lead to hardened hearts. Sometimes it's not direct action, though. It could be ignoring or neglecting our hearts. And this is particularly dangerous, not exclusively, but particularly dangerous for the, for the men in the room. Guys, you are conditioned by nature and by nurture to cut out your hearts. You've been told your whole life, most of us, when things go wrong in your life, what are the things that you're told, especially as a guy? As a kid, don't cry. Stop crying. What, what is going on? Suck it up. And then for action, you're told, figure it out and get it done. This is what makes you successful. This is what builds a good reputation. This is what gets you noticed at work. Nobody in your job is ever going to say, you know, I'm so glad that you talked so openly about your feelings today. But they will say, wow, nobody could crack that problem. You figured it out. You took action and got it done. Good job. Here's the door that's going to open for you. You've been conditioned to cut out your heart. Now, again, I'm not saying that's exclusive to men. I know from my own experience, though, this is how I felt it. Ladies, I'm sure there are ways that you've felt it as well. But what happens when we cut out our own hearts and pretend that we can wall those off and just go through life with trying to use our minds and our actions to try to figure things out and get them done is that we will become numb because we've spent so much time that we won't be able to grapple with what's actually happening in our hearts. And so then eventually you will look for means of escape just to feel something, to experience something that feels alive. This is what will lead you to addiction, whether it's substance or whether it's escape through pornography, just feel a moment, a flash of intimacy. It's what will lead you to be completely indulgent in your work and become a workaholic. It can lead to, to transactional relationships in your life because you don't know how to be wholehearted in those relationships. You only know how to put in certain, certain input, expecting certain outcomes because you've made your entire life about a transaction. But you won't be able to sustain it your heart will get calloused and hard, and eventually you'll fall, just like Pharaoh. And at times, God will harden our hearts. And that's hard to grapple with. It's hard to read in this text, but, but I think we need to realize what it looks like when God hardens our hearts. Because often what it will look like when God hardens our hearts is not what we think. It's not, it's not, Pharaoh here wasn't experiencing much, much of the death and destruction around him until the very end. But up until that point, a lot of the stuff is external. It's outside. It's others that are in, in Egypt. But often when God hardens our hearts, what it will look like is that God will give you everything that you want 
He will turn you over to your own idolatry. He will turn you over to the things that you desire most deeply and give every one of them to you, and that will lead you to your destruction because you will find your hope in the things that he has given you rather than in God himself. And so this is difficult for us because, I mean, have you ever been frustrated when God answers one of your prayers the way you want it to be answered? Usually those are the moments we're saying, this is a miracle, we're going to celebrate this, this is the story we're going to tell, and yet so often when God answers our prayers by saying no, what he's doing is protecting us and cultivating a greater dependence on him, which is ultimately for our good. And so, as it's been said, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay, I think one of the difficult things for me today is the realization that even as you hear God's word, even as you hear it read, as you hear his truth, that for some of you it's going to mean that God's word is going to soften your heart, and for others of you it may mean that it gets hardened even further. And so in this section we see that God has made himself known, that he's all-powerful, that he changes hearts, and then finally, fourth, that he redeems, God redeems. And so this gets to the 10th sign. I'm going to read a section because this is too important to just tell the story of it. In chapter 12, we read this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. And in this manner you shall eat it with your belt Fastened your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. and You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Moving down to verse 29. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and, his, and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also." And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. They said, we shall all be dead. And so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls and being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and for gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people the favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked for. And they, thus they plundered the Egyptians. And so this is... The moment. God's people were brought out of the land of Egypt. He said, take a lamb without blemish and kill it and sacrifice it. Put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel above. 
a lamb, a sheep or a goat, and this will protect you from the wrath of God that's going to come. This began and set up the sacrificial system that we see developed throughout the Old Testament. Passover was a festival. It's the first one listed in in a set of 23 feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a portrait of God's salvation and his rescue from Egypt and provision for his people that, that he didn't just save them out of Egypt, but he brought them to himself with the ultimate goal of the promised land in his presence, saving them from darkness into light. This becomes the salvific event in all of Israel's history and the foundation that is called back to you over and over and over again to say, haven't you seen how God brought you out of the land of Egyptians, of the Egyptians, how he carried you himself out? It was his power to redeem you and to purchase you from slavery. And this becomes the foundation for the hope that we have. That in in John chapter 1, that Jesus' cousin named John saw Jesus coming toward him. And what did he say about him? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he calls his cousin by that title because he knew that Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb. This is what we see in the transfiguration on the mountain when when Jesus' glory is revealed to Peter and James and John. And it says that he appeared in glory with Elijah and with Moses and that they together in Luke 9, they appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. See, this, this theme carries through that, that in Christ what we see is the ultimate Passover lamb killed, slain on our behalf so that the wrath of God would not fall on us. All four Gospels show us that it was on the night of the Feast of Unleavened Bread as he was with his disciples celebrating the Passover meal together with a lamb together, that it was on that night that Jesus himself was betrayed and arrested and sent toward trial and killed in our place and for our sin, that his blood was shed. Why? Because the wrath of God rightly sits on every one of us because of the hardness of our own hearts. But this is the great hope that we're given, that we already read in today's service, that while we are weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now listen, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified, called righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, the hope that we have, the only hope that we have is that that in the midst of God's presence, the wrath of God will pass over us because of the blood of the Lamb. The Israelites hadn't earned their redemption here. They cried out in distress under the weight of the Egyptians. But remember, even last week, they didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirits, and yet God saved them and redeemed them. There is nothing that you can do that would place you beyond the reach of the one true God through Christ. He's made himself known. He is all-powerful. He changes hearts, and he redeems us. And in Christ, in Jesus Christ, he made himself known ultimately and fully and truly, and it's only through Christ that we can know that Yahweh is God without it leading to our destruction. That's why Isaiah cried out, woe is me, I'm ruined, because he was in the presence of a holy God. But this is the lamb that we worship. This is what we read in Revelation chapter 5. Just listen to these words. This is a vision of the throne in the heavens, and it says that that. that four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain by your blood, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God. 
from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. It says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. If you hear God's voice to you today, don't harden your heart. Don't continue to pursue the same things that you know are wrong, that are dulling your sensitivity to him. You can turn in repentance and belief and find hope in the lamb who has been slain for you. I was reminded this past couple of weeks by a pastor, um, do you know why the church doors of this building are painted red? It's traditionally a color for church doors, and this historic building that we have the privilege of meeting in, we walk every week through red doors. And that's not coincidental. It's not an accident. It's because we enter this place together as the redeemed people of God. We enter this place together through the blood of Christ as we come before God in worship. It's the blood of Christ that covers the doorposts and shelters us from the rightful wrath of God on us so that, whatever, so that there is hope, whatever we might face out there, that when we come together in here, we can find rest and shelter and hope and peace. And that's just one small picture of a much greater reality. So my hope today is that the Spirit of God would soften your hearts, that, that we can go out of this peace with, with joy in our redemption, knowing that just as the Israelites left with the wealth of the Egyptians, we will have an inheritance in the kingdom of light with the king over all things. That's the God we worship together. That's the God we sing to together. A God who has made himself known to all the nations and who redeems us by the blood of his son. Father, would you soften our hearts today? We become so calloused on our own. We chase after things that dull our senses, that close our ears and shut our eyes and calcify our hearts, would you soften them today? Would you cut back the layers that we've put into place in our own, in our own lives and actions? Would you, would you free us from guilt and shame, and would you help us to trust in the blood of your Son? And his body was broken for us, his blood was spilled for us, giving us hope of reconciliation and peace with you not just saving us from your wrath, but, in, but also bringing us into your family. And so we thank you for your redeeming love in Christ, and it's in his name we pray, amen.